The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 35, a Psalm of David. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly, and let his net that he has hidden catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my brother or friend. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha! Aha! Our eyes have seen it. This you have seen, Lord. Do not keep silence. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so we would have it. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Okay, before we get into Joshua 9, um, I heard of somebody that attends online 
uh, and they've been to this church a couple times. I did not know this, and I just found it out, is that Chris has prostate cancer. It's stage four, and uh, so we want to have him in prayer. He was supposed to have an operation, and it was delayed, and so he's going to uh, have that in the days ahead. But uh, keep Chris in prayer, please. All right, we are in Joshua 9, starting in verse 19 and through the end of the chapter, and this is entitled, We Are Your Servants, Part 2. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live. But let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters, and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Of the Gibeonites, Adam Clark said, Had they come to the Israelites and simply submitted themselves without opposition and without fraud, they had certainly fared much better. Lying in hypocrisy always defeat their own purpose, and at best can succeed only for a short season. Truth and honesty never wear out. Again, he summed up his commentary on chapter 9, saying, One, the Gibeonites told lies in order to save their lives. No expediency can justify this, nor are we called to attempt it. The Gibeonites were heathens, and we can expect nothing better from them. Two, they did not profit by their falsity. Had they come in fairly, sought peace, and renounced their idolatry, they would have had life on honorable terms. As it was, they barely escaped with their lives and were utterly deprived of their political liberty. Even the good that is sought by unlawful means has God's curse on it. Three, we need not be solicitous for the character of the Gibeonites here. They are neither our models nor believers in the true God. And therefore, pure religion is not concerned in their prevarication and falsity. For someone whose commentary I so enjoy, he can get very far afield at times. He said, had they come to the Israelites and simply submitted themselves without opposition and without fraud, they had certainly fared much better. Rather, they would have all been killed. This was the command of the Lord. The people were devoted to God, and they could not spare them. We already saw what happened when Achan broke the law of Cherem. Next, he said of their lying, no expediency can justify this. Actually, the saving of their lives did justify it just as was the case with Rahav. After that, he said, they did not profit by their falsity. Actually, the result of their falsity was 100% profit. They would have lost everything otherwise. 
they did escape with their lives. And even if they did not possess all the rights of Israel, they were given the political liberty of Israel because they were granted protection under the covenant of Israel. Finally, he said that the Gibeonites were not believers in the true God. Actually, they were. This is exactly why they came to Joshua, just as Rahav had already done. Our text first comes from Isaiah 57. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That's Isaiah 57, 19 through 21. The Lord offers peace to those who are far off, and he says there is no peace for the wicked. In last week's passage, Joshua was said to have made shalom, or peace, with the Gibeonites. Did the Lord take a nap during the events that transpired? Or are we being shown something else than what Adam Clark had noted? From the text itself, we can see that the Gibeonites profited off of their lives. That may have upset Israel, but the Gibeonites were not under the law of Moses. They were, however, under the law of conscience. They weighed out their options, saw that only one may possibly preserve their lives, and they did what any rational person would do who was in a similar circumstance. For Christians, this is not a note condoning lying, but neither are we under the law. Consider the Jews in Nazi Germany. They have been marked for extermination. If we hide one in our basement and then lie about it, we have evaluated the circumstance, made a moral decision, and weighed out the positives and the negatives. Even if our lives are forfeit for what we have done, it is surely the proper course to take. Try not to sit too high on your bench of supposed moral superiority. You may find out that when you fall, it will be a painful experience. It is right and it is proper to tell the truth, but it can be right and proper to not do so at times. It is certain that Corey Ten Boom and many like her would agree. Seek the highest moral principle at all times, and the way you can know which is right is to study the Word of God. In it, you will find the proper standard of all morality by which you can then rightly conduct your own affairs. For now, we will continue on with the story of the Gibeonites. It is a marvelous part of God's superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is woodcutters and water carriers. It's verses 19 through 27. Verse 19, then all the rulers said to all the congregation. The words of the rulers now are given in response to what was said in the final verse of the previous sermon. Joshua 9.18, but the children of Israel did not attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. The people complained against the rulers because they were not allowed to attack and plunder the Gibeonites. In response, the rulers now speak to all the congregation saying, verse 19 continues, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. We have sworn to them in Jehovah, God of Israel. 
It is true that the Gibeonites entered into the covenant under false pretenses, but it is also true that Israel did not do their due diligence in searching out the matter before agreeing and entering into the covenant. When they did search it out, it was already confirmed in Jehovah God of Israel. It was thus binding upon them. The thought is reflected in a list of traits the Lord expects of his people, which is found in Psalm 15. A couple of them are from Psalm 15, 4 and 5, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The people feared the Lord in whose name the oath was made. This was true for both the Gibeonites and those of Israel. The people had sworn even to their own hurt, and now they had to stand by their words. And because of this, verse 19 continues, now therefore we may not touch them. In this case, the general word naga or touch carries with it the sense of striking or harming them. They must keep their hands off of them because of the covenant that had been cut. The fact that this is correct is validated hundreds of years later when Saul violated the terms of this covenant. 2 Samuel 21, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. The words have been spoken and Israel was bound to them. But this does not mean that they didn't have other options at their disposal while still remaining faithful to their oath. Verse 20, this we will do to them. There's no profit that can be gained from the Gibeonites through their death and plundering of their goods. That is established through oath. However, they can be profited off of through their lives. And so, verse 20 continues, we will let them live. There is a strong emphasis through the use of an infinitive absolute verb, otam, and letting live them. This sets the parameters as required by the covenant. Without complying, the leaders knew there would be consequences. Verse 20 continues, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And no become upon us wrath upon the oath which we swore to them. They directly tie the Lord's wrath to the cutting of the covenant. As noted, this is exactly what came upon Israel when Saul violated it many generations later. As one can see, there is now a conflict between the precept of the law that demanded Israel kill every living person in Canaan and being obedient to the covenant that was made. Both are explicitly addressed in the law, and yet one precept must now trump the other. You can go to Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, and compare them. But this has already happened in the oath the two spies made with Rahav. That can be seen as nothing but a violation of the precept of the law, and yet they were obligated to preserve her after the oath was made. For the Gibeonites, the covenant stands. However, nothing was said about any of the finer details. Israel will now use that to their advantage. Verse 21, and the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. There is a particular emphasis in the words that even the English displays pretty well. Yichu va yiyu, let them live and let them be. 
It was the Gibeonites who came to Israel to make a covenant. Israel agreed, but the covenant itself was based on falsity. Therefore, there was nothing to limit them beyond the basic words of the covenant. They were to be subjected to the lowest form of servile labor. In this, they use a proverbial expression first stated way back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 29, all of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp. Here it is, the idiom, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It will be seen later that this specifically includes a job tied to the service of the Lord. The designation for this service eventually became known as Nethanim, or those given to the service of the temple. They are mentioned mostly in Ezra and in Nehemiah, and some of those people are possibly descendants of these Gibeonites right here. Just a guess. Verse 22, then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, why have you deceived us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Whether Joshua realizes it or not, the fingers are actually pointing in both directions at the same time. Why have you deceived us? It is true that the Gibeonites deceived Israel, but the reason for it is as obvious as the nose on one's face. They wanted to live. The Gibeonites could just as easily have said, and why didn't you do a better job of checking things out? Joshua could have said, we will send ambassadors with you to your people and consult with them first. That would have resolved the matter immediately. One can see that the Gibeonites knew without a doubt that Israel would hold fast to the covenant if it was made. This is what they were counting on, and that has been proven true. The subterfuge worked, the lie obtained its purpose, and Israel was limited in what it could do. But they were not completely hand-tied. Verse 23, now therefore you are cursed. And now cursed you. This is actually nothing new, so they really don't seem to mind. The people descended from Canaan the son of Ham, the grandson of Noah. And guess what Canaan was? Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, that's the Gibeonite people group, the Archite and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemorite, and the Hamathite. Canaan, meaning him, and all who issued from him had been cursed by their ancestor Noah in Genesis 9. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. From one curse to another, the Gibeonites were still blessed enough to have saved their lives through cunning. However, verse 23 continues, And none of you shall be freed from being slaves. Velo yikaret michem eved. And no shall be cut, singular, from you, plural, servant. This follows after the curse of Noah. They were slaves. Servants, the word is the same in Hebrew, and they were to remain that way forever. With that stated, Joshua clarifies the words of verse 21, with verse 23 continuing, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Not only are they to be woodcutters and water carriers, but they are to do so, lebet elohai, to house my God. The meaning of this is actually twofold. 
First, they were to supply wood and water continuously for the maintenance of the tabernacle. This would be for burning of the sacrifices and offerings and for the required washings mandated by the law. However, this surely would have also included service in the building of the temple at the time of Solomon. Here's what it says. All the people who are left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who are not of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy, from these Solomon raised forced labor as it is to this day. But Solomon did not make the children of Israel servants for his work. Some were men of war, captains of his officers, captains of his chariots and his cavalry. And others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. That's from 2 Chronicles chapter 8. One can see that the Gibeonites, who are Hivites, were not the only ones to not be destroyed by Israel. Rather, Israel generally failed to comply with the words of the law in utterly exterminating many people in the land. Despite this, the forced labor went beyond the temple, even to the building of Solomon's house, the storage cities, and so on. With the burdensome mandate levied upon the Gibeonites by Joshua, they next respond as to why they chose this path. Verse 24, so they answered Joshua and said, Joshua is obviously speaking to the rulers of the people, and they together respond with the motivating issue behind their scheme. Verse 24 continues, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord, your God, commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. The words are emphatic, ki huged hugad la avadecha for declaring it was declared to your servants. They knew without any question that the law had been set forth and that all in Canaan were to be exterminated. But more, they note that it was a command from Jehovah through Moses. Verse 24 continues, Therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. And feared greatly to our souls from your presence and did the word the this. Of this, Cambridge incorrectly states, fear had been their sole motive in seeking an alliance with Israel. Theirs was not the faith which had prompted Rahab to save the spies. Rather, fear is exactly what made Rahab do what she did. It says right there in Joshua 2. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us. She includes herself in it. And that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. It was faith in the Lord that drove both Rahab and the Gibeonites to fear the Lord. If they didn't believe in the Lord... They would have been like everybody else, but they believed the word concerning the Lord and they believed the word of the Lord spoken to Moses. Thus, they acted in faith, which was spurred on by fear. This is no different than Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 2, who was a devout man and one who feared God. The Lord saw his faith, his fear, and his deeds, and so he led him to himself. And again, Albert Barnes misses the scope of the matter, saying they sought for union with God's people, not for its own sake, but to save their lives. Rahab's motives were higher. Hence, she was adopted into Israel. The Gibeonites remained forever bondsmen of Israel. This is not entirely correct. 
We don't know what happened to the family of Rahav other than that they dwelt among Israel, just as the Gibeonites did, Joshua 6.25. Also, Ishmaiah, the Gibeonite, is specifically noted as a chief man among David's warriors in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 4. As for the Gibeonites at the time of Joshua, verse 25. And now, here we are in your hands. And now behold us in your singular hand. They have placed themselves solely at the mercy of Joshua and his power in your hand. They know their lives will be spared. This is all they could have hoped for. If their plan failed, they would have died, which is exactly what they knew lay ahead for them anyway. Anything beyond execution, therefore, is grace. And so, verse 25 continues, do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. Before I go on, what is the term that we use of people who are in Christ? Keep going. Born again. Keep going. Bond servants is what I'm thinking of. Anybody seeing anything yet? Verse 25 continues. Do with us as seems good and right to do to us. The words are solely to Joshua in the singular. According to the good and according to the straight in your eyes to do to us do. He is the leader of Israel. He has made his judgment, and they have agreed without any protest at all, acknowledging that his determination is good, meaning it's fair, and that it is straight, meaning that it is in accord with the words of the covenant that was already cut. Verse 26, so he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. Here is righteousness. It cannot be said that this is so much an act of mercy. Mercy would be if these people came and said, we are Gibeonites and we submit ourselves to you. Please do not kill us. And that was then followed by an agreement to not kill them. However, that would have been unrighteous mercy because they were already commanded to utterly kill the inhabitants of the land. Instead, it is the Gibeonites who acted with subterfuge and Israel cut the covenant without properly checking the necessary facts. Despite this, the covenant was cut. As such, Joshua is displaying righteousness in his upholding of the covenant. Along with that, verse 27. And that day, Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation. It is more personal and precise. Vayitanem Yehoshua bayom hahu etzim mayim la'eda. And gave them, Joshua, in the day the it hewers, wood, and drawers water to the congregation. They have placed themselves in Joshua's hand, and Joshua now gives them as a gift to the congregation. This is justice. The people were denied the plunder of the cities, and the Gibeonites were given to the people to replace the failing of cutting the covenant which deprived the people of their spoil. The people would be happy, the Gibeonites would be alive, and Joshua has resolved the matter without violating the covenant that had been cut. Also, verse 27 finishes with, and for the altar of the Lord, in the place which he would choose even to this day. Ule Mizbach Yehovah Ad Hayom Hazeh El Hamakom Asher Yivchar, and to altar Yehovah until the day, the this, 
to the place which he would choose. This is grace. Despite being a lowly job, it is a service to the Lord, and thus it is the highest service one could perform. It is reminiscent of the words of Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Despite not being a part of the congregation, the Gibeonites were spared in order to serve the Lord's people and the altar of the Lord. Hence, despite their situation, they fared better than those of other nations who had not yet even heard of the Lord. It is better to share in the Lord as a servant than to have no share in the Lord. Better a slave of Christ than to be the richest king. To have Jesus is more wonderful than the finest gold. Sharing in his goodness, we shall forever sing and revel in the greatest story ever told. Better to have Jesus than gems galore. To have all the world's silver is to be rejected. Such things will never get a sinner through the door. That will only happen when right faith is detected. If you possessed Satan's signet ring and you had all the world's authority and power, such things would not mean a thing when finally came your dying hour. Rejoice in the Lord and rest in Jesus always. Only he can give life and bestow eternal days. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. The first chapters of Joshua showed the process of Israel coming to Christ. Chapter 8 revealed the ending of the Old Covenant and the acceptance of the New in the account of building the altar at Mount Ebal. That is something still in Israel's future. The New Covenant was made not with the Gentiles, but with Israel. That is clearly stated in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Did anybody see anything about Gentiles in that? That is clear and unambiguous. It is also addressed to the people of Israel long before the coming of Christ. Hence, it is impossible for it to be referring to anyone but Israel. That is confirmed in Hebrews 8, 7 through 13, much of which is a direct citation of the book of Jeremiah. The author of Hebrews is addressing the Hebrew people, not the church, even if aspects of the letter apply to all believers. When Jesus established the new covenant as recorded in the Gospels, he did so in accordance with the words of Jeremiah, meaning it was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Nothing he said could lead anyone to any other conclusion. And yet, Paul refers to the new covenant in 1 and 2 Corinthians. First, he cites Jesus' words from the Gospels. This is Paul, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Next, he speaks of those who administer this new covenant. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul is clearly writing to Gentiles as the apostle to the Gentiles. But this doesn't explain how Gentiles are included in the new covenant if it was given to Israel and to Judah. The account of the Gibeonites in this passage reveals how that occurs. Obviously, there's a real account that is being dealt with. And so there's a lot that has to be stripped out of it to get to the basics. The reason this is so is that the Gibeonites were real people who really served Israel in their history. And so what happens includes details concerning their state as servants of Israel. But the point is that they were brought into a covenant standing with Israel who is in a covenant or in a new covenant standing with the Lord. And so this account is presented. If you noticed, there were lots of people groups mentioned as serving as laborers in Israel in the account from 2 Chronicles 8. They included the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. With the exception of the Canaanites, these same groups were mentioned in verse 1 of this chapter. There's no need to mention the Canaanites because other than the Perizzites, they're all Canaanite people groups. But it is the Gibeonites who are highlighted here in order to set the typology. All the people groups formed an alliance in order to fight against Israel, but the Gibeonites wanted to be allied with Israel. In verse 4, we saw that the Gibeonites were as cunning against Israel as Israel had been against I. Israel defeated the law, overcoming it through Christ. Now the Gibeonites, those who want to join Israel, act in cunning to join with them. To do this, they have old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched shoes, old garments, and bread that is dry and crumbly. In this state, in verse 6, it said that they went to Joshua and spoke to him and to all the men of Israel, noting that they were from a land far away and asked for a covenant to be made with them. Although this isn't true, it still reflects their state. If they were from Hajima, Japan, for all intents and purposes, they wouldn't be any closer to Israel concerning their rights than being from Gibeon, which is geographically just down the road a bit. They truly are far off from Israel, at least in that sense. In verse 7, Joshua is not mentioned. Just the men of Israel who respond with, and said, plural, man, singular, Israel, unto the Hivite, singular. As noted, the name probably means tent villager but it is identical to the word Chava, or life, the name of Adam's wife, Eve. Abarim notes that the verb form Chava means to lay out in order, to live collectively, and describes investing one's personal sovereignty into a living collective like a symbiont. 
It's mostly translated as to prostrate, which is to submit oneself wholly and bodily to a collective or to the leader of that collective. This is essentially what they are doing, submitting themselves to a collective. But more, they are doing it to find life. In the next verses, they speak to Joshua, noting they are his servants and that they have come because of the name of Jehovah and they had heard of his fame and of all that he did in Egypt. Also, what he had done to Sihon and Og. Israel had been brought out of bondage and the Gibeonites wanted to share in that. It must be noted that Israel had been brought out of Egypt and into the law. Nothing was said by the Gibeonites about Israel crossing the Jordan as they did. In other words, the typology of crossing through Christ was supposedly unknown to them, even though they knew perfectly well that Israel had passed through the Jordan. After this, and for a second time, the account focused on the bread, the wineskins, the garments, and the sandals. It is then that we noted the contrast to Israel. Deuteronomy 29, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. That all occurred while Israel was under the law. The typology is obvious. These people were not under the law. No need to worry in this regard. Israel is under the new covenant, and these people are not under the law. In other words, typologically, these are not Judaizers trying to get Israel to return to the law. To more fully understand that, you could go back and review those verses in the Deuteronomy 29 sermon. But suffice it to say that Israel, while under the punishment of the law, lacked the things that would normally keep people alive and united, food, wine, and strong drink. And yet, they remained a people. They are now united in Christ under the new covenant. These Gibeonites are not law observers. They are not members of the new covenant, and they are far off from Israel. With that noted, Israel accepted that they were who they said they were, and they were willing to cut a covenant with them, even without inquiring of the Lord. As such, it says Joshua made peace with them and cut a covenant with them to let them live. It also noted that the rulers swore to them, in typology, Joshua represents Jesus, and the elders represent the rulers. That can be established based on Jesus' words of Matthew 19, 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. One who sits on a throne is a ruler. The apostles were in agreement concerning the conversion of Gentiles, as noted in Acts 15 and elsewhere. After the subterfuge was discovered, it said that Israel journeyed to their cities and four cities were named. I couldn't find anything in the names that gives additional typology, but the number four is the world number. Hence, it is surely indicating that there is Israel and there is the agreement made with the world beyond Israel. With that, the final verse from last week noted that Israel did not attack them because they had sworn by the Lord God of Israel. Because of this, the congregation complained against the rulers. That seems obvious enough. Israel wants it to be all about them. But there are others that are to be brought into the covenant relationship as well. The verses for today show the actual response of Israel to the cunningness of the Gibeonites. But the point of those verses is that there was nothing that they could do. 
The covenant had been cut and nothing could be done to them. But what Israel saw as a loss turned out to be a benefit for them. They may not have been able to plunder their spoil, but they were able to use the productivity of these Gentiles for their benefit. This was to be literally true in Israel. And typologically, it has been true as well. It is the Gentiles who have done the work of expanding the kingdom, building the church, and searching out God's word. Thus, Israel has benefited, even if they were unhappy about the situation at first. The Gentiles were granted life through the covenant cut with Jesus, and they have been productive for the kingdom ever since. In short, this story is given to reveal how the Gentiles ended up under the new covenant, even though that covenant was promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The name Gibeon, as we saw, means hill town or hilly, but the name comes from Gavia, which is derived from a root conveying the sense of elevation or roundness. Hence, it means a cup or a bowl. When upside down, it looks like a hill. I would surmise that they were chosen because the name is etymologically akin to the Aramaic word Gabatha, which means an elevated place, a knoll, hence a rounded area like a goblet. Jesus submitted himself to the Roman authority in order to establish the new covenant in his blood. The Gibeonites submitted themselves to Joshua in order to enter into the covenant relationship that had been established with Israel. And actual distance aside, they were as far from the nation of Israel as they could have been. Hence, there was the strong focus on the word far. It was used three times in the passage, and twice it was joined to the superlative me'od, or very. That perfectly fits with Paul's words of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off had been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gibeonites submitted themselves to Joshua. That was verse 9-8. And it said in verse 15, so made, singular, with them, Joshua, peace, and cut, singular, to them, covenant, to live them. It practically mirrors the words of Isaiah from our text verse. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. That is also exactingly stated by Paul in Ephesians 2, and that will be cited in our closing verse today. As far as the idea of being woodcutters and water bearers, that is not given in typology, but as a poetic idea of providing for the altar of the Lord. It is something we have all participated in, if you think about it. Christ died on the cross for our sins. If we can put ourselves into that picture, we can see that with our sins, we actually helped cut the wood, that of his cross, our altar before God. And what do we do with the salvation that comes from it? Isaiah says, Isaiah 12, and in that day you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He has also become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, 
you will draw water. The word sha'av, draw, from the wells of salvation. Isaiah uses the same word to describe drawing of waters from the wells of salvation that is used of the Gibeonites drawing water for Israel. As noted, it is the Gentiles that have carried the banner of the church, and it is from those efforts that Israel will someday realize they need Jesus. When that comes about, the water from those wells will truly be used to minister to Israel. The typology in the passage here and of which I have failingly presented to you because of so much that has surely been missed, is given to show us several things. First and foremost, it is to again let us know that the church has not replaced Israel. Rather, the church is a body made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and it is based on the new covenant, the Christ covenant. Israel as a nation has not yet entered into that new covenant. But we have been shown in the previous chapters that they will do so someday. Until they do, there needed to be an explanation provided as to how the Gentiles are brought into this new covenant, and thus into the commonwealth of Israel. This passage has addressed that. The Gibeonites were never under the law or the sustaining hand of Israel during their time of punishment under the law. Further, Gentiles have been far off from the promises to Israel. There was no hope. Rather, there was only the promise of being destroyed. But those Gentiles who come to Jesus in faith, just as the Gibeonites came to Joshua in faith, will be saved. They will be given life. The typology tells us this, even if I may have failed to present some of the finer points. For you today, it is your duty to come to Christ, believe the gospel, and receive the salvation that he offers to those who will. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. This is the gospel message. I got to talk to a couple people about it in the projects yesterday. Nice couple. I did ask him a question and he answered in a funny way until he thought through what he was saying. I said, did you ever have to teach your children to do wrong? He says, oh, I taught them wrong all the time. I said, that's not what I asked, but... He realized the error of his ways, and I told him, from now on, you need to work towards teaching them to do right. But good people, hopefully they'll uh, make the right decision. They did. They made the right decision. They received Jesus, but uh, hopefully they'll continue to make the right decision is what I should say, to live for the Lord. But the first thing you have to do is get right with the Lord, and you can't do that unless you come to Christ. During the uh, update today, you saw how angry I was at that guy over in Ireland that was excoriating one of his friars for giving a sermon on sin. This is what the Bible teaches, folks. We're sinners. Christ died for our sins. That's the first part of the gospel. If you don't tell people that they have sinned, then there's no point in Jesus coming. It's pointless. Oh, I flipped out at that guy. I mean, I was just beside myself that somebody would excoriate one of the people under him for preaching about sin. I can't even imagine it. Christ died for your sins. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. He rose proving that he had no sin of his own and that your sin is buried forever. This is the good news of Jesus Christ because without this news, there is no hope for any of us ever. Please call on Jesus today. And if you have somebody in your life that doesn't know Jesus, tell him. Open your mouth and speak. These people need to hear the good news. And like I said, we got a whole track full of racks over there rack full of tracks over there. 
grab some and hand them out, please. I never mind seeing that getting empty and having to go, I gotta order more and stamp 5,000 tracks. Good! Never bothers me. Our closing verse comes from Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace. Here it is. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Wonderful. It's just marvelous what God has done and how he keeps showing us these little hints of it in his word. Nothing is missing. Nothing is ever lacking in his word. Oh, what about this? Man, he's got it answered already. Somewhere in his word, there is nothing that God forgot in the process of salvation, including how to include us in a covenant that belonged to Israel and Judah. Nothing is missing. Next week, Joshua 10, 1 through 15. The fighting will go on and on until the battle is done. It's entitled The Battle for Gibeon. Part 1. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 20th Joshua sermon. Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I've got something here. If you can get this question, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to raise your hand because everybody's going to get this. Yeah, right. Okay? <laughs> everybody's going to get this, so I need you to raise your hand. This is Larvette's Original Worm Snacks. Sergio was in... Colorado, and he said, I'm going to get this for the church. This is Larvette's Original Worm Snacks. It's barbecue flavor. Barbecue flavor. If you can answer this, raise your hand and I will give this to you. Who is the main theme in scripture? Who said that? Well, you didn't, you raised your hand. Nobody else did. Did you? Yeah, okay. You have to no, 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 there. no, no, no. I only raised my hand. <laughs> I'm sorry, you want it. We, we, actually, actually, that is, that is, pass the gospel. They're passing the gospel on. Okay, that, that was not, that was not the true, that was not the true gift, okay? That was just Sergio being Sergio. This is, Susan Garrett, we're doing something here. This is the true gift. This is a public gift certificate. I just dropped it. It's like 10 to 20 bucks. I don't know. It's something like that. Okay. That was just Sergio being Sergio and wanting us to have some fun today. Here it is. I want you to answer this question, and if you get it, then that'll be great. I'd like some of those, so please save a couple for me. All right. In this sermon, we heard of the curse upon Canaan. In the same verses, Noah blessed Shem and Japheth. What is the substance? You don't have to quote it, but what is the substance of Japheth's blessing? He will dwell in the tents of Shem. The first one is, I will enlarge Japheth, expand him, and he will dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan is his slave. Those are the three things, but that's what I was looking for. Okay. All right. We'll give it to, who, who has a need for this? If, does anybody have a need for it in the church? 
I'm going to hand it out again next. Why don't you give it to somebody that needs it? Okay, well, we're going to find... I, I, I can't keep handing the same thing out. Take it to the project. Okay, we'll take it to the project. So we'll find somebody that has... Maybe in my car, I'll be, you know, somewhere this week. We'll, we'll find somebody for it. Okay. All right. I got a poem and we're done. We are your servants, and this is part two. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. Shoot, darn it, dang it all, and oh well. This we will do to them. We will let them live, no haul or hem, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, let them live, but let them woodcutters be and water carriers for all the congregation as for the rulers had promised them after their trickery. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? This is not so kosher and not plus, plus, plus. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and none of you shall from being slaves be freed, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God, because of your sneaky deed. So they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told words not so grand that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid. Yes, our ears did ring for our lives because of you. So we have now done this thing. And now here we are in your hands. For us, it is a plus. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them as they planned. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation. So it was that way and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. You're pretty tired there. He's been yawning through the whole sermon. I understand the sermons can be a little bit overwhelming, but... Actually, they had to get up early this morning. It broke my heart to see that he got up at 5 o'clock. Oh, yeah, that's what, yeah. I had already been up, cut down oh, three trees and cut them up. Oh, you're being sarcastic. I thought <laughs> Here we go. You grab one, I'll grab one. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for happiness, fellowship, and the ability to laugh through life. Things are really getting dark in this world, Lord. Yes. Things are falling apart right before our eyes, and we've got just difficult times coming upon everybody, and yet we can still have a sense of humor. Thank you for that, Lord. And we just ask that you uh, uh, bless those people that we mentioned throughout the sermon and before the sermon that are struggling with their own issues and their sicknesses and trials. Lord, be with them and help them. And Lord, we commit this table to you, knowing that Christ is the one who did for us what we could never do. So thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.